Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. From its Galveston, Texas origin in 1865, the observance of June 19th as the African-American Emancipation Day has spread across the United States and beyond. But the story goes beyond Texas and reaches in rather significant ways in Kentucky. And as has been said before, today we will discuss the rest of the story. We'll discuss that today with Dr. Alistine Turley, a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, a scholar of African-American history, and author of the 2022 Thomas Clark Medallion from the University Press of Kentucky a guest on this podcast uh, several times, and an honor to have her back before our microphone today. Dr. Turley, welcome to Think Humanities. Oh, thank you, Bill, once again for inviting me. Well, it's um, something that uh, we have discussed in the past, Juneteenth and Emancipation Day, and the importance uh, to get us started, why don't we just start with the very uh, roots of why we celebrated, what happened in Texas, how it came to Kentucky, and then we'll sort of fill in with a little tease to the uh, listeners out there uh, about uh, what more there is to the story that maybe might surprise some people. Oh, okay. Well, Juneteenth, of course, became a national celebration about two years ago, uh, pushed through, of course, by uh, scholars who have Texas connections, and and I really applaud them. But Juneteenth is the celebration of Gordon Granger arriving in Mobile Bay and stationing uh, troops in Texas to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, inform those in Texas, which was still at this time uh, very much part of Mexico territory, that they were free. They no longer had to uh, suffer under slavery and that they, the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued almost two years prior and the slaves in Texas, roughly 250,000 enslaved African-Americans in Texas were not aware that uh, they had been given their freedom. And uh, he was a major, is that correct? Major Granger. What what did he decide or what gave him the authority uh, to take the action that um, he undertook? Well, he was in charge of the commander of the Department of Texas. He uh, had originally been part of the District of uh, Department of the Cumberland. And so under his command, he had several units. He was sent to Mobile Bay uh, with uh, roughly 16,000 United States colored troops. 
that he landed in Mobile Bay and greeted them, gave read uh, order number three, declaring all enslaved African-Americans free and subject to, gave the rules about what they must do now that they're free and offering them the protection of the federal troops to enforce their rights there in Texas. And so uh, he leaves behind a garrison of the 16,000 uh, United States colored troops to enforce his order. Uh, Dr. Turley, what does your research, uh, your scholarship tell you about some of the uh, the details of, uh, if you can, for, for us who aren't steeped in uh, that kind of background, uh, give us a picture of the of the United States uh, as uh, of America at that time. Um, how many states were fully engaged in the practice of uh, of slavery, and were they all in the the southern uh, part of the United States? Every state below the Mason Dixon line, which included Kentucky, by the way, Maryland, uh, which we I. Most people don't ever think of as a southern state, but it is Maryland, uh, Kentucky, Missouri, and Delaware are slaveholding states, but they are not impacted by the Emancipation Proclamation. So here in Kentucky, while we are rapidly enlisting United States colored troops at Camp Nelson, we are still a slaveholding state. And so there are 13, I believe, I, I think the 13 Confederate states and Kentucky was pretty evenly divided between Confederate and um, Union forces. And this idea of uh, Kentucky, Abraham Lincoln made the statement he could survive, but he really needed to have Kentucky. He did not want Kentucky to be neutral. So at the very beginning of the war, Kentucky signs on as a union state. So even though it's holding slaves, it is considered part of the union. And I don't know if everyone's aware because I think post-Civil War, we see Kentucky as a slave-holding Southern state, but it is firmly within the union. And it's it's very ironic that both Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln are both born here in Kentucky. So it's so symbolic that Kentucky becomes this battleground with these two presidents who are uh, fighting for supremacy. Therein lies uh, the first uh, interesting point, uh, Dr. Turley, I, I think. And I will first turn to you and ask for a definition or two, or just some wording that you might add to it. Uh, Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. Correct. But it did not necessarily uh, call for the end to slavery. So describe for me what um, the the root word uh, meant to Lincoln at that time, and how Major Granger, for example, interpreted that and why it didn't apply to slavery. Well, first of all, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, did not have the force of federal law because it was an executive order. Number one, that it was Lincoln's executive order. And he did it mainly as a military move uh, so that he, okay, 
back up. At this time that he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, he does so because the Union Army is losing. There being the men uh, that are fighting on the side of the Union have made the determination they don't necessarily want to die to end slavery. And so Lincoln is really um, forced in many ways to issue the Emancipation Proclamation as a military move because he needs more fighting men. So the primarily function of the uh, of the Emancipation Proclamation was to allow enslaved African-Americans to enlist in Union forces. So they end up recruiting 180,000 African-Americans who sign up to fight within the Union Army and Navy. And with that bolster of energy of new fighting men, very much motivated, much more motivated than um, white soldiers who have decided maybe we need to go home and just invest in our own interest rather than trying to um, free black men, that, um, that this is the boost that Lincoln needed and that the Emancipation Proclamation provided. And inside that proclamation, yes, it's talking about freeing slaves, but more importantly, it's talking about giving the War Department the ability to recruit and train African-Americans as soldiers. So for me, that's the more uh, vital element of the Emancipation Proclamation. Actually, at the end of the, uh, uh, Johnson has to, um, uh, what is it, uh, when you confirm the order, make it a, a standing uh, law here. Uh-huh. Uh, Johnson, the, the the vice president, the vice president, who's very much not a Lincoln supporter, even though he is he's a Southerner. He's a former slave owner. Uh, he does everything he can to aid the South at the end of the war. But uh, Lincoln has to get this emancipation turned into law and and not functioning simply as an order from him. So that I always think that's an important part of part of our history that we don't talk about as much because we think the emancipation did it all, but it really didn't. And uh, it certainly didn't free slaves uh, in states that Lincoln needed, these border states. It did not free them because he he did not want to alienate uh, those folks he knew he needed to hold to win the war, basically. And that is part of the rest of the story uh, that I, I think is sometimes in our celebratory effort, which is lauded and and needs to be respected, is forgotten. Um, and that is that the Emancipation Proclamation did not end slavery. Not in all places, no. Just only in those states that were in rebellion. It, it was applying specifically to states in rebellion. Well, uh, Kentucky was not in rebellion. So that was the deal that Kentuckians cut in order to be able to maintain their slaves. But the problem, of course, is that in addition to saying, okay, you don't have to free your slaves, Kentucky, but guess what? We're going to put up a recruiting station right there in Camp Nelson. <laughs> So you can imagine, uh, even though the intent was there to make Kentucky happy, when African-Americans knew that federal troops were here in Kentucky, they flocked there in droves to enlist. And enlisting automatically gave them their freedom. 
Today, we often talk about the the urban-rural divide, but at that time, as I understand it, and you can clarify this for me, it was um, there. There was a divide, but it was between the government or or the supporters of Lincoln and uh, the way that he wanted the Emancipation Proclamation interpreted, and what the 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 agricultural community or the farmers or the slaveholders they were the ones that were saying, "Now wait a minute, we, we'll go along with the war part of this. We want to win, but we want to hold on to our slaves." Correct. Kentucky's uh, industry was being driven a great deal by uh, interest, landed interests who were making quite a bit of money off slavery through their sale of hemp to the Navy, which uh, was using it. You know, Kentucky was one of the biggest producers of hemp and the U.S. military and the Navy was one of the biggest benefactors of that product for making ropes and that. And we had some of the largest rope factories. So there's there are reasons that um, Kentucky slaveholders felt and the industrial end of it felt, hey, we can't afford to lose our our slaves. Now you're really putting your hand in our pockets and and we don't like it. So uh, Kentucky resisted this idea and thought they'd struck a pretty good bargain with Lincoln. So there were uh, there were two states. Uh, tell, tell us, and Kentucky being one of those, tell us um, after the Emancipation Proclamation where Kentucky and Delaware, certainly disparate uh, geographically and um, in, in many other ways too, uh, states found themselves. Well, they find themselves as slaveholding states with fairly significant black populations that they were trying to hold on to. And, um, you know, Delaware is right across from DC. DC is actively recruiting. They, they were in the same position as Kentucky. Yes, you might want to try and keep enslaved African-Americans, but just exactly how are you gonna do that? when they can go right across the bay there and enlist in Washington, which had one of the largest recruiting areas as well. And by the way, Washington, D.C. was still hanging on to slaves, too. So even though it's not a state, but uh, slavery was still happening there. So you have all of these kind of hodgepodge uh <laughs> things going on during the Civil War that aren't so clean as we'd like to think. Did we, um, as Kentuckians, did early history until your research uh, and, and so many other noted uh, African-American scholars uh, revealed that Kentucky wasn't the... Uh, the the fair-minded, um, mm -hmm. impartial, uh, pro-union um, state uh, that we might have been taught when we were in grade school? Yeah, I'm not really sure where that idea came from. Yes, Kentucky was very much in favor of slaveholding. True enough, uh, we were doing things that... Um, might lead one to believe that we had this more, I think the term uh, 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 better, more humane form of slavery. 
because Kentucky slaves were not, uh, they could own their own children. They could, uh, enslaved African-Americans could have a weapon. They could have a gun. They couldn't have ammunition, but they could have a gun in case of defense and, and, and their owner needed them to help defend their properties. And they could also be taught to read and write. That was not illegal for Kentuckians, enslaved Kentuckians here. Uh, and because Kentucky didn't have huge plantations, we, we didn't have that type of growing season where we had large numbers, uh, large plantations. But uh, enslaved African-Americans, probably more than any other state, had more skilled labor. So enslaved African-Americans were candy makers, tin makers, blacksmiths, coopers. Uh, they had a variety of trades. And many times they were the managers of these trades in addition, even though they were enslaved, they had been entrusted by their owners to pretty much run these operations. So when you talk about rope factories and when you talk about printing, when you talk about all these various fields where African-Americans, enslaved African-Americans worked, they were still enslaved. And so I think sometimes people may look at that and say, well, K Kentucky had a kinder, gentler form of slavery if there is ever such a thing, but that that's the reputation that Kentucky had. We're going to talk about what occurred from that point um, into Reconstruction. We're going to uh, have you define for us how we went from that point to now celebrating that date in a national holiday. And also uh, another date that you have some interest and in, some scholarship in, uh, and that is August 8th. And we'll do that right after we hear from our good friends at Spalding University. Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing prepares students to publish, produce, and find professional success. Alumni publish books with top presses, write for television and film, and have plays produced around the country. They work as editors, professors, media professionals, content developers, and more. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. I'm talking to Dr. Alistine uh, Turley uh, about uh, Juneteenth and uh, other uh, factors that add to the national holiday that uh, the nation celebrates on June 19th. Dr. Turley is a member of our Speakers Bureau, a noted African-American scholar who's sought after to speak uh, all over the, the nation, uh, is going to be quite busy in uh, a few days uh, traveling and speaking uh, on the uh, national holiday that's coming up. She's also uh, the uh, author of a uh, noted uh, scholarship uh, that the University Press of Kentucky uh, uh, published last year, uh, the uh, the Gospel of Freedom, uh, and that is a, uh, a Thomas Clark Medallion winner in 2022. We're so proud that uh, we've talked to her about that and, and that it's doing uh, quite well, and that book is available. Uh, really a fascinating read. Uh, uh, one of those other uh, industries that we talked about, not really an industry, but was uh, African-Americans at that time were 
Um, maybe some don't realize how robust their uh, practice of religion and forming of uh, church affiliations and and preaching in, in large congregations was, Dr. Turley. Yes, very large here in Kentucky. We had, we, um, Black evangelicals, Kentucky at that time was a frontier, and many African-Americans belonged to prominent congregations here in Kentucky. And as I mentioned to you before, they were sought after because they could actually read the Gospels and uh, write publications and preach in churches and do those things. So, of course, by the time Reconstruction comes along, um, African-Americans are in great demand in these southern states where they need teachers and education and leadership. But leading up to, uh, Bill, thank you for mentioning, I know Juneteenth is a national holiday and people, I don't want people to think I have harsh feelings toward June 19th. I don't. But as a Kentuckian and an East Kentuckian, I would like for people to know that Emancipation Saturday is a big event as well. And that August 8th celebrations are really what we celebrate over here in Eastern, uh, in Appalachia, Central Appalachia, which includes, of course, Southern Ohio, East Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky. And Emancipation Saturday happened August 8th, 1863, in which uh, Vice President Andrew, Andrew Johnson, in order to be Lincoln's vice president, one of the requirements of receiving the job was that he free slaves. I mean, Johnson was a slaveholder. And so before accepting the position as, as Lincoln's vice president, he frees his slaves. And he, that starts the first East Tennessee celebrations of, of August 8th or Emancipation Saturday, uh, as it's sometimes called as well. And so you have a large contingent of North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio uh, people who still connect to that early August 8th celebration. And my family will be celebrating its 159th August 8th celebration this August. We always do it the second Saturday in August because August 8th may not always be on a Saturday, but it's always the second Saturday. So I want Kentuckians to know that's part of our early history as well. Dr. Turley, it almost begs the question, is there room for two <laughs> celebrations of um, of emancipation um, days? Uh, why do you think June 19th is overshadowing Emancipation Saturday? Uh, is it the years or is that connected to the, the proclamation that Lincoln uh, in his executive order uh, had to do with uh, does it carry that weight uh of course it it languished for 200 years before it was uh recognized as a national holiday um what 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 are your speculations on uh, or is there is there any research that that leads you to what what the reasons are well i think two things i think that um Emancipation Saturday has pretty much been viewed as a regional celebration. Like, like I say, if you live in anywhere in central Appalachia, everybody in central Appalachia knows about Emancipation Saturday. Uh, Kentucky and Paducah 
has the longest running. They've been celebrating Emancipation Saturday ever since its founding. But but other than a few regional things, people, there was no big push to make Emancipation Saturday a national holiday. I think it's always been recognized as an Appalachian thing. Well, let me stop you right there and just ask you if um, if it was celebrated in uh, Appalachia, in uh, North uh, uh, Southeast Ohio, North Carolina, how did it get across the state uh, of Kentucky down to Paducah? What 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 what's the reason that Paducah picked it up uh, rather than and skipped over central Kentucky, for example? Well, that's a good question. What happened, of course, at the end of the Civil War um when people were declaring that Appalachia was white, you know, it, it, there's this, again, very lack of history to understand the history of Appalachia, which was, it was a huge black population because of the work that went on there, the mm-hmm. mining of coal, the mining of saltpeter, the mining of salt, all of these important, that was done primarily by enslaved African-American labor. At the end of the war, when there's no longer uh, an ability to enslave people in these mining uh, interests or railroad interests or any of these industrial interests, African-Americans are pretty much run out of the region um, by white Confederates. And so they are seeking, uh, where number one, where they can find jobs. And so they're going to Ohio, they're going to Western Kentucky on the river, they're they're seeking, uh, and they take their traditions with them. So uh, even though they're no longer, many of them are no longer in central Appalachia, the tradition follows. It, it follows to Ohio, it follows to Western Kentucky, it follows to parts of Indiana where African-Americans are relocating in order to find better economic opportunities. Should August 8th, Emancipation Saturday, be a national holiday? Ooh. Well, I I would love for it to be. I just don't think now, with all the lobbying that's been done to celebrate Juneteenth, that people would, um, would, as you said, celebrate two holidays. I would be happy if people understood that Kentucky's central part in Juneteenth, because we talk about Juneteenth, but I'm sure most people aren't aware that the people who arrived in Galveston, Texas with Granger were predominantly Black Kentuckians with at least six military units from Kentucky who ended up in Galveston, Texas to enforce it. So yes, you can go there and Granger can make the announcement, you're free, but who's to ensure that it happens? And it's United States colored troops that leave from uh, the District of the Cumberland, or Department of the Cumberland, sorry, and from Camp Nelson uh, and go down to station themselves in Texas, roughly 16,000 United States colored troops end up go there with Granger to make sure that these 250,000 enslaved Texans have their rights respected. And so the bigger story of that too would be what happens in Texas once 1870 that um, then president, the president removes the federal troops from Southern states. And this is of course, 
if you follow lynching history, which I do in my work, you begin to see how many uh, states where these colored troops, especially in Texas, are the first ones to be lynched by um, white Southerners who now see an opportunity that federal government is no longer protecting black troops in their states and they begin the lynching campaign. So this is all, uh, all these stories are connected, I guess is my point. There is no clear line, but but it's a bigger story that I think we really need to talk more about. Uh, one last point um, on what followed uh, the Emancipation Proclamation in June 19th. Um, and, and after the war, uh, was supposed to be ended <laughs> and under the false notion that slavery was ended uh, we went into the jim crow era and, and the reconstruction era it in many ways did it not uh, dr turley and this is a, a, an entire podcast on its own and and volumes of uh, other research that we could uh, get into but we won't today maybe another time but uh, we really returned to a, a dark period uh, in our uh, country's history that no one imagined would happen at the time. Uh, and certainly Lincoln did not, I'm sure, after he had gone through the effort of, of uh, bringing uh, or hopefully bringing the war to a conclusion um, as he did. Um, and we went into a reverse mode at that point and uh, went, went backward instead of forward. Right. The presidential election of 1870, that was the dark deal struck to remove the federal troops with the understanding to gain support from the South uh, for democratic efforts. Removing the federal troops was a big part of that agreement. And who lost out on that were, of course, African-Americans who, who are just beginning to grow into their power as freed American citizens. And it really did open up that new era that you're speaking of, of Jim Crow and Southern segregation, where Southerners thought now is our opportunity to uh, reestablish, we won't call it slavery, we'll just call it uh, Jim Crow. We will still have, uh, you have the birth of a, of a prison system where people, mainly African-Americans in the South, who can't demonstrate uh, that they own property or have money, are subject to arrest under newly installed vagrancy laws. And so because they can't show where they're actually working or have money or have an employer, they're imprisoned and then hired out or are sent out as free labor working through the prison systems with for some of the same people who had enslaved them before. So it's a, it's a very vicious cycle. There's a great um, uh, series called the 13th, 13th, talking about the 13th Amendment and how enslaved African-Americans began to make up the majority of the what we now call the prison complex. And it's mainly made up because African-Americans are now free labor. We return to free, free labor, only now they're considered convicts. Well, I'll um, just almost guarantee you there wasn't any Juneteenth celebration occurring at that time during that period of our history. No. And, and that's the good thing, Bill. At least now people are aware of uh, Texas and not being the last state of 
who, who frees their slaves. Um, so I can't be hostile, but I just like for folks to understand that emancipation did not happen with one stroke of the pen, that it occurred in different places at different times in different ways. It just happens that Juneteenth was the last official notification by the federal government that slavery as an, an American institution had come to an end. And if that you were going to be part of the United States, which by the way, Texas did not want to be, <laughs> that uh, you could not hold slaves. And, but it did open the door uh, for a new American vision of Africa for African-Americans, which did not equate to equality but a uh, reinforcement of past practice. Dr. Turley, uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, talk with you and to learn from you. And um, uh, you always have a, a tidbit of, uh, of new information for us. Uh, your new book, The Gospel of Freedom, is, um, is replete with that. Uh, it's an incredible read for everyone who is looking for some new information on a on a period of our history that uh, is is just fascinating, and and this uh, today, this discussion, uh, and enlightening us on uh, Emancipation Saturday uh, fits right into that mold too. So once again, uh, safe travels to you, and uh, we will uh, talk with you again, I'm, I'm sure, and and see you hopefully uh, soon in person. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you to the audience. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.